Hello, fellow fans of Footnoting History. I'm Lantern Jack, host of the Ancient Greece Declassified podcast. Simply put, my show is about exploring the most interesting legends, ideas, mysteries, larger-than-life characters, and watershed moments from ancient Greek history that continue to shape our world today. In every episode, I speak with a world expert in ancient history or archaeology or philosophy and ask them to explain their most exciting research in simple language, free of academic jargon. We always choose topics that are relevant to today's world and today's challenges. If any of this piques your interest, then take a moment to check out Ancient Greece Declassified wherever you get your podcasts. And now, enjoy another great episode of Footnoting History. Many of us have heard the stories of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence. We can spot John Hancock's signature in a crowded space. But who among us can talk about the woman whose name appears just below? Find out today on Footnoting History. Welcome to Footnoting History. I will be your host, Leslie Skousen, and today I am going to talk about some of the more important contributions women made to the American War for Independence. Despite having largely been written out of popular accounts, women were a part of battles, planning committees, support efforts, and more. Many roles assigned to women were traditional in scope, things like nursing, cooking, laundering. But they adopted more overt contributions as well. Women can be found employed as scouts and spies throughout revolutionary accounts. Some women even disguised themselves as men in order to fight the cause directly. Deborah Sampson famously did so, but she is among countless women who have adopted this approach throughout historical conflicts, from Jeanne d'Arc to Milan and beyond. Women also held down the home front, managing estates and businesses, while the war itself raged, and even published extensive written treatises in favor of liberty, independence, and the war itself. In spite of all of these roles and sacrifices, women are often boiled down to perhaps two names when students are called upon today to name a founding mother. Common answers include Betsy Ross for sewing the American flag and perhaps Abigail Adams for her famous line asking her husband John Adams to remember the ladies while designing a new government. It's such a shame that women contributed heavily to this dramatic 18th century conflict only to be ignored by textbooks and pop culture 200 years later. One name cannot be overlooked, and that is because it appears on the Declaration of Independence itself. At the bottom of the document, centered in perfect typeset, and just beneath Hancock's famous scrawl, sits her name, Mary Catherine Goddard. But who was this woman? Was she a diplomat, an aristocrat, an heiress, a philosopher? Mary Catherine Goddard was born in 1738 to a family of printers living in colonial-era Connecticut. The daughter of an aristocrat, she was provided with a traditional education of high-born daughters, that is to say, a basis of tutoring that focused heavily on the classics, Latin, French, music, literature, and similar subjects. Her father served as the local postmaster before becoming ill. Both the loss of her father and his role as postmaster would be influential to Mary Catherine's adult life. To help with the family finances upon her father's sudden illness, her 15-year-old brother William went to apprentice as a printer. His apprenticeship would be successful enough to open his own print shop in Providence, Rhode Island. William built upon that success by moving to Philadelphia and then ultimately to Baltimore, opening more print shops as he moved. 
However, his training was nothing compared to his personality, and William soon became buried in troubles. His success was more reflective of an impulsive personality combined with an industry in high demand. Had William chosen his profession more poorly, the entire family could have been ruined. Fortunately, though, he chose well, by focusing on print shops which would have some value even if William himself weren't exactly the smartest businessman. When his luck ran out and he began to quarrel with his financial partners, he left his affairs in the capable hands of his sister, Mary Catherine. She had the chance to step in and run the business on his behalf. And so, while William sat in a debtor's prison, Mary made his paper a success. During her time as the leading editorial power working on her brother's behalf, Mary Catherine Goddard really came into her own. She had a flair for ideology and politics. She soon embraced the patriot cause and began to publish opinion pieces, news articles, and dramatic stories designed to illustrate the great injustice that she saw in the way British rule existed in the colonies. The newspaper gave her a platform to argue the case against British authority. She used slavery as the structure of her arguments. This was fairly ironic uh, for multiple reasons. Not only was she using slavery to make the point that her slave-owning readership should embrace these ideas, she wasn't actually making the point that slavery itself was necessarily a bad thing. It was, in these arguments, only a bad thing to subject a white person to enslavement. Furthermore, the irony expands because Mary Catherine herself was a slave owner. This fact is rarely mentioned in articles summarizing her life, and it is normally only mentioned when summarizing the effects of her will after she died. Nevertheless, realities of the slave economy aside, this cognitive dissonance between identify something as undesirable and therefore slave-like without identifying her own slave-owning status as important, we end up with a complicated woman using the language and imagery of slavery to capture the minds, hearts, and opinions of a robust readership around Baltimore. The concept of slavery was familiar to her own situation and essential for her audience. Her Baltimore Journal newspaper therefore covered controversial subjects about the brutality of British soldiers and also printed calls for the local readership to stand together in resistance. She even reprinted passages of Thomas Paine's Common Sense as a way to plant the seeds of rebellion in the hearts of her Baltimore readers. By April of 1775, Mary Catherine Goddard threw her support behind a woman's movement for the cause. The so-called homespun movement was a woman's boycott drive to avoid supporting any British goods wherever possible. Mary Catherine published encouragement and information related to the boycott of British thread goods. By making their own clothes and avoiding any purchase of British fabrics, these women were able to hurt the Brits where it counted, in their pocketbooks. She further published tips for adopting frugality and avoided even the slightest engagement with British profits. She was particularly vocal in her arguments against the Stamp Act. This was hardly surprising if you think about it, as the Stamp Act affected all paper goods and paper products. An additional heavy tax on paper goods would have had the largest impact on print shops and newspapers. From a business acumen perspective, or from the perspective of a revolutionary woman, the restriction of paper goods through expensive taxing would have been an enormous blow to Goddard's world and to the city of Baltimore. Publishing treatises, broadsides, newspapers, books, and other inflammatory materials would become devastating both to her business and to her political cause. 
the Stamp Act and its sister Intolerable Acts, such as the Sugar Act and the Tea Act, was needed to pay for troops that had been deployed during the so-called Seven Years' War, which lasted nine years, also known as the French and Indian War, which included other countries like Britain, Prussia, Austria, Sweden, and Russia. This war and its names have always made me laugh. The troops were, in effect, protecting colonists from the Native Americans who sided with the France-Russia-Sweden alliance from those invading from siding with the British alliance, including American colonists. And I've always been amused by people who portray the Stamp Act or the Sugar Act as being designed to just randomly tax colonists in order to rich the fat cat king in Parliament. I think it's important to realize that this was not just a cash grab. There was a bill, and the bill needed to be paid. But the revolution was a way to avoid payment, all in the name of liberty. Mary Catherine Goddard saw the benefit of rebellion overpaying this expensive bill and published supportive articles accordingly. As the Revolutionary War began, Goddard published stories about the battles with breathtaking drama. The British behaved with savage barbarity, she proclaimed, attempting to sway any reader to support the patriot cause. As the war began to take shape, colonists experienced a disruption of government services. Soon, the Continental Congress overtook some of these services, and this included things like delivering the mail. Benjamin Franklin famously became the first postmaster general, but he chose his local representatives well. In Baltimore, he reached out to the Goddard Printing family's best representative and asked Mary Catherine to serve as the local Baltimore postmaster. This may render her the first female employee in the new forming federal government. In addition to postal services, this also meant that her print shop and newspaper would begin to fulfill local print-related needs for the government. This included important announcements, news items, advertising for the new government's needs, and the dissemination of important proclamations. And that is precisely why Baltimore, and Mary Catherine in particular, assumed an historical role. The Declaration of Independence was written in various places before distribution, but there came a time when anonymity would have been an enemy to their cause. For the first time, the Founding Fathers decided to publish the Declaration and ensure all signatures appeared upon it. Their chosen location for publishing was the Goddard Printer. And while Mary Catherine usually signed her name M.K. Goddard, following a tradition of female professionals in a man's world that continues still today, she changed her approach for this one momentous occasion. Instead, she signed her name in full. And so... We have the Declaration of Independence, the first appearance of all revolutionary members on a single document, and there, centered at the bottom, just beneath Hancock's classic signature, is the name of a woman in even delicate print. Although she was not a representative, she was an active revolutionary, supporting the cause of home rule and rejecting the British authority by publishing important ideas and encouraging the local Baltimore residents to think differently about the nature of civil duty, government, and consent. The publication of this declaration may have been the pinnacle of her productive career, but it wasn't the end. She held the position of Baltimore Postmaster for 14 years, serving the people well while continuing to publish her newspaper. Finally, in 1789, she was removed from the position. Those in charge decided that postal services would require her to travel and that so much travel might be a challenge to her delicate constitution. Pearl-clutching commence. But the people of Baltimore firmly disagreed. They did not take the news lightly. 
they sought to have her reinstated and refused to honor the authority of the new postmaster, whose name was John White, and who was a good friend of the postmaster general, Samuel Osgood. In November of 1789, in response to this new postmaster, a fairly large group of 230 Baltimoreans marched on Samuel Osgood in order to petition the reinstatement of Mary Catherine Goddard. This petition kindly stated that she had given, quote, universal satisfaction to the community, end quote, and wished for her immediate restoration. Although they were ultimately unsuccessful, it is remarkable that a woman would have such a strong following and citywide support for her professional work. At this point, Mary Catherine's life and responsibilities began to wind down. Her brother was drawn to the success of her paper and publicly stated that they had had a quarrel which would require him to retake possession of his business. Having lost both her newspaper and her position with the government, Mary Catherine began a new business selling books and papers for the rest of her life. She did this with the help of her slave, whose name was Belinda. Mary Catherine Goddard passed away in August of 1816, nearly 30 years after placing her name at the bottom of the Declaration of Independence. Upon her death, she bequeathed all her worldly belongings to her slave Belinda, stating that Belinda should enjoy freedom for the rest of her life. Thus ended the life of an interesting woman, an entrepreneur, a printer, a postmaster, a slave owner, and a spinster who found a well-rounded life through a series of businesses related to the ideology of being a revolutionary. By placing her name on the declaration and accepting the position of Baltimore's postmaster, she surely made history. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.